Chapter 13 of the Life and Ventures of the Original John Jacob Astor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life and Ventures of the Original John Jacob Astor by Elizabeth Louisa Gebhardt. Chapter 13 Independence Day while it was new. At about this period there came to America a young Scotchman named Grant Thorburn, who opened a shop in Liberty Street. A few years later, and for many years after, John Jacob Astor was his neighbor, having moved his own business to the same street. An interesting letter written in Mr. Thorburn's later life tells the story of his first Fourth of July in America and gives several other facts which suggest the type of life and events which were familiar to those who peopled the little city of New York in 1794. By this time the city contained 40,000 inhabitants. Broadway began at the Battery and terminated at the head of the Warren Street. According to an old writer, either at church or market, we saw each other often at that period. New York was, in fact, a city of brotherly love. Grant Thorburn's letter is dated New Haven, 6th June, 1861, 4th of July. The first one I saw in New York after I arrived from Scotland, the 4th of July, 1794. I landed in New York on the 16th of June, 1794. Then, in my twenty-third year, but being very small, I looked ten years younger. A wrought nail-maker by trade, I had my shop in Liberty Street, between Nazoo and Broadway. The school belonging to the Society of Friends kept on the opposite side of the street. When the boys arrived before the school doors were open, they assembled in my shop, which was a large frame building, and I was the only occupant. Here commenced a friendship with the sons of the Liggetts, the Foxes, the Franklins, the Wrights, the Willets, etc., which thirty-five years after put $80,000 in my pockets, and will describe the 4th of July, 1794. On the morning of the 4th, the bells rang one hour at sunrise, and thirteen guns were fired on the battery at the foot of Broadway at eleven o'clock. A company of old veterans marched from Park to the battery and fired another salute at twelve. They wore the old tattered uniforms and picked up cocked hats, which they wore when fighting by the side of Washington at the Battle of Monument. Some had lost a leg, some an arm, and others leaned on crutches. In 1801, when Jefferson became president, I saw some of these men dismissed from the Custom House in New York. Their places were filled by imported patriots, but such is the gratitude of modern republic. At 3 o'clock p.m., the Cincinnati Society dined at the coffee house, which stood at the corner of Wall and Walter Streets. The society was composed entirely of revolutionary officers and their sons. They dined on the first story. The windows were open, and a cannon called a six-pounder fired a shot when each gun toast was drunk. 
At 4 p.m. I stood at the lower end of the fly market, foot of Maiden Lane. People were stepping aboard a small boat, which the oarsman said was a Brooklyn ferry boat. It held 12 passengers and was rowed by two men. After waiting 15 minutes for the passengers, we started. A strong tide setting in carried us as up as far as Grand Street. We made Long Island Shore near the wallabout, then rode down close on the Long Island Shore, and landed in Brooklyn, after a passage of one hour and ten minutes. I stood for the first time on Long Island. I looked through the four winds of heaven, standing on the wharf. I was not able to count over twenty dwellings in all directions. About one thousand feet from the wharf, right in the middle of the road, stood an old Dutch church. The wagons going to Newtown drove to the right. The wagons going to the river drove to the left of the church. The church stood in the days of Governor Cyrus. I went forward on the road toward Newtown. A thunderstorm commenced. I took shelter in a cottage by the wayside. After conversing half an hour with the inmates, the rain ceased. On returning, I noticed a field of Indian corn on the wayside the leaves and the tassels hanging full of large drops of rain. The sun was going down, which made the raindrops like pearls. It was the first time I had seen corn in the blade. I thought it looked a field which the Lord had blessed. We had skyrockets in the park at 8 p.m., which closed the 4th of July, 1794. A second young man came to New York in the 90s though not from the old world with whom john jacob astor was destined to be closely associated in after years john robbins like john astor longed to see the world and try his hand at making his fortune one day he was lucky enough to catch a muskrat he skinned it and took the skin with him to philadelphia bartering it for two books one a copy of robinson crusoe and other a bible we have the record that the Bible was still a treasured possession in his old age. John Robbins had an older brother, Enoch, who was a shipping merchant in the Old Slip, New York. His ships were not large, but he loaded them with all kinds of provisions, pork, beef, onions, etc., and sent them back to West India Islands. About 100 ships came to New York in those years, of which 40 were square-rigged and 60 sloops. Boats were extensively used and, of course, were all built here. The square-rigged vessels did not probably average over 110 tons each and not over one quarter were built and owned in New York. The largest vessels owned in New York in 1796 were about 250 tons burden. One of 200 was considered a large ship. Soon after young Robbins reached New York, his brother Enoch loaded the brig Mary with staves for wine, casks, dried codfish, and other commodities to make an assorted cargo. Then he dispatched the vessel from New York to Bilboa in the Bay of Biscay with his brother John as supercargo. The United States was at war with France, and a France privateer came very near capturing the Mary in which case John Robbins' story would have had a different ending. It required three months to sell the cargo at Balboa, after which the Mary sailed to Lisbon and disposed of her staffs and took on board instead 
a quantity of gold and silver for New York. The exporting of silver was forbidden by the Portugal government. But John Robbins had a special belt made, and every time he left the ship, he returned with a thousand Spanish dollars. In this way, he gathered $16,000. Then the Mary got under sail for St. Eubes, where she loaded with salt and returned to New York, having made a most successful voyage. The salt sold for a dollar a bushel, and John Robbins had also saved several hundred dollars. Now that he had a small capital, he decided to give up the sea and embark as a dry goods merchant, but not until he had learned the trade. Pearl Street was a fashionable shopping district in those days, but though John Robbins made application at store after store, he failed to find a position. At last he reached Henry Laverty's, where he asked for a clerkship, offering to work without salary in order to learn the business. Mr. Laverty accepted the offer, and after the young Philadelphian slept in the store on the counter, rising at daybreak to open the shop and sweep it out, after which he arranged the dry goods in the windows. A clerk in those days went through a regular course of learning the business. He first delivered goods, keeping account of the marks and the number of packages. He also received goods, again taking account of the marks and packages. A part of his task was to copy letters, and when he could do this neatly and expeditiously, he was prompted to make duplicates of letters to go by the packets. Next he copied accounts, which he was entrusted with the responsibility of making the accounts. A clerk who had mastered these details instructed and inspected the work of later arrivals. All these duties were the acknowledged path toward becoming a successful merchant. At night, John Robbins closed the store and betook himself to his bed on the counter, having led a most active day. Meanwhile, he was learning the qualities and the values of dry goods. When his time was up, Mr. Lavity offered him first a salary, then a partnership. But young Robbins refused both, having fully decided on going into the business for himself. He resolved at start not to run into debt, so refused good offers of credit, starting in a modest way by carrying home his own purchases from an auction. He steadily prospered in the business in which he had so conscientiously perfected himself. John Robbins' mother was a capable old-fashioned Dutch woman who lived behind a Dutch door. With the upper half of her door swung in and leaning over the lower half, she loved to watch what was going on in the street. Besides her neighborly sociability, she was long remembered by her son's friends for her culinary skill, the flavor of her coffee, and the delicate taste of her pies and cake, leaving a long trail of happy remembrance behind them. End of chapter 13